0: Welcome to episode 124 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Mali, your host. This week, I speak to Sultan Jan G. Sultan is currently heavily involved in the British Pro Tour. He's also a well-known former empire, having umpired at Grand Slam Finals, Davis Cup Finals, and for greats such as Graf, Seles, Sampras, Agassi, Borg, McEnroe, and more. He tells us all about what he's up to now, and importantly, stories from his umpiring days. I've always wanted an umpire in the show, but with two rules today, working umpires can't engage in podcasts. So it was great for Sultan to join us. Apologies if the sound isn't up to our usual quality, but apart from that, I really hope you enjoyed the show. Before we start, a shout-out to our podcast sponsors, Slinger, who make the awesome portable ball machine, the Slinger Bag. And also, I just want to say they're an absolute fantastic partner to work with. Head over to Slingerbag.com to get all the info on the Slingerbag. If any questions at all about it, feel free to reach out to me or reach out to the Slinger team at DMs on the Slingerbag Instagram account. Okay, here's Sultan. Sultan, welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you?
1: I'm very well here, intros Rosemary.
0: So tell me... What are you doing today? You no longer work full-time as an umpire. What's your day job?
1: I, well, I'm semi-retired, but I've been working for the last kind of 10 weeks here at the UK Pro League for a company called River Media, where we've set up basically a UK Pro League, which is for British professional players, male and female players. And I've been kind of the organisational guy behind the scenes, doing all the draws and uh, orders of play, and getting all the officials organized for this event.
0: Nice. And tell us quickly for our listeners who don't know the Pro League, the UK Pro League, what is it? Okay, The so UK
1: Pro League is uh, basically professional tennis players in the UK and we've set up a round-robin tennis tournament for them. So every single player is guaranteed five matches over the seven days and they play for good, serious prize money and they're basically set up in kind of round robin groups, and then they play, the winners of each groups and runners up go through to the quarterfinals, like a to normal tournament: quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals. But they also have playback matches, therefore guaranteeing five matches per week.
0: Okay, so the players are kept busy. The quality is good, and they're keeping you busy, are they?
1: They are certainly keeping me busy because there's a lot of matches. I mean, just to give an example, at a normal kind of ITF event, ATP event. You have a 32 draw, and every day you diminish by half. So you only have 31 matches in singles. Here at the UK Pro League, we are playing every week 60 matches minimum. So that's quite a lot of uh, tennis matches to organise uh, in a weekly. But the good thing is we are always playing indoors, so we don't have the elements to deal with, wind, rain. None of those conditions uh, apply to us uh, we, we play all under indoor, fantastic conditions.
0: And tell me, do you know Abigail Johnson?
1: I know Abigail Johnson because she is one of our regular, regular, thoroughly knowledgeable tennis guru uh, who's been doing all our um, live matches, record, uh, not recording, commentating on all our matches that are being played here uh, at the various venues that we've gone around the country uh, to.
0: Yeah, no, she's great. We had her on the podcast about, I don't know, eight or nine episodes ago. She's really good, informed and really loves the game. So she's a good addition to the UK Pro League.
1: Now, we've been very lucky in, in, in finding her last year. And she's so, so thoroughly knowledgeable and committed to actually understanding all the British players and promoting them as much as possible. And she does a lot of research background about their personal lifestyles and, um, you know, how they do at other events around world the- around the world uh, because all professional players besides playing with us for five, six weeks they do go around the world playing other ITF ATP tournaments so yes she's a very, very knowledgeable person to have around
0: Great let's cut to the chase here you are a very experienced umpire you've done Wimbledon finals men and female finals you've done Davis Cup finals so you've umpired at the top of the game and I want to talk to you about that But before we get into that, tell me, what's the difference between umpiring today and umpiring 30 years ago? Has the job got easier or harder with the aid of technology?
1: For me, I think that the matches have got easier because the biggest element that has been taken away in this modern day, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, it's actually a fantastic thing, is the evolution of technology. So we have Hawkeye Live, for example, at all the matches. What that does is actually takes away all the frustration and anger that a player develops when they get a what they think they've had, a bum call. With the electronic line calling, there are no bad calls or there are no poor calls, and therefore the players do not get as angry and uh, take vent out their frustrations against the chair umpire. So I would say, yes, it has got easier, but my colleagues might not necessarily agree with me. It's a different style of Umpiring now rather than easier or difficult,
0: and that's the technology side of things. And from the let's say from having been an umpire as a career, has that got easier? Do they get paid better now? Is there better working terms?
1: Oh, that is hugely, hugely improved. So, I was one of the first six uh, the chair umpires employed by the ITS to go around and be a professional umpire. So, that was. So the starting point at 1990. Over the years, things have improved tremendously uh, to the extent that all the three major organisations, i.e., the International Tennis Federation, the ATP, the WTA, they all employ a minimum of ten full-time umpires who are paid a proper salary with proper kind of uh, pension schemes and time off in lieu. So yes, the, the, those thirty guys. Making a comfortable living, but not making as huge a living as some of what people think it is. But so it's a fantastic career lifestyle. You know, you travel the world, you see some amazing, amazing cities around the world. But so it's much more coordinated now and you know, well organized.
0: No, it is, and it's one of my goals. Was to speak to an umpire, so this is a great episode for me. I was asking one of the members in my tennis club, uh, Fergus Murphy. And I tried to get him on, but he was telling me that umpires can't talk to the media. Can you tell me more about that?
1: Oh, uh, It's just one of those things that um, all the umpires are told not to actually kind of talk to the media, because often media always wants the kind of the inner gossips and possibly fiscal scenarios that are taking place in court. So we don't really want the chair umpire to be seen as a controversial figure. So we're always leaving it to the head of officials, which is often a referee on-site, um, but normally we say the head of the ATP or the head of WTA, head of officiating at the ITF, will do all the necessary media interrogation because they are theoretically more experienced in, in, in dealing with the, the media. Um, so there's nothing kind of untoward. It's just it's easier to control from... Um, It's just one of those
0: policies that we've got. Yeah, it's interesting. Just tough, you know. We're talking to you, so it's like trying to talk to a judge where they can never talk on the record. It's always you have to wait till they retire before you can actually talk to them. Because actually, yeah, I remember I was looking for a judge to talk about some tennis-related event, and we tried to get one on come to podcast, but they said there's no way they can come on. But anyway, so that's what the current umpires are like. Let's get on to some of the players you umpired, I know from a bit of research you've umpired McEnroe he was. He said you were one of his favourites Graf, Sellis, Sampras Courier, Agassi and so many more but tell us what was it like in the chair against McEnroe?
1: I was very lucky uh, in the sense I kind of uh, came through my career in the period when we didn't have professional officiating at all you know, in that era we didn't have a, none of the organisations had a proper training programme so often the lines people were not trained correctly. So the chair umpires had what I consider a tough time. But I was lucky. I kind of played some tennis. I was kind of competent with the rules and regulations. Um, and I had some lucky breaks. And I kind of grew up umpiring at the very top very quickly. So I had people like you said, McEnroe, Connors, Lendl, Ash, Agassi, Navratilova, Chris Evert, you know, all the celebrity status ex now, and I umpire them. So coming back to McEnroe, I don't know. It just happened that um, when I first umpired his matches, I wasn't... I mean, I was nervous, definitely, because I made some kind of tough calls, but I was one of those guys who was confident enough to answer back Uh, without sounding kind of arrogant. I kind of... If I was asked a question by McEnroe, I remember just giving him a simple answer in my opinion and somehow it seemed to kind of agree with him that here was some umpire who was prepared to stand up and say something back and then it just transpired that I was asked to go to the Canadian Open, I was asked to go to the Stratton Mountain, next thing I know I've been asked to do Mackinac matches and I kind of said to myself, oh why have I got Mackinac today, you know I'm going to, bound to mess it up and um stop my kind of career moving forward uh, because I'm gonna have a hassle and, and not be able to deal with it. But little did I realise that a few years later as a referee, McEnroe would often ask the current referee at the tournament, he'd rather have Sultan Mr. Zanzibar in the chair because he felt that I was uh, a pleasant, reasonable guy.
0: And where does Zanzibar come from?
1: Ah well I was born on the lovely island of Zanzibar, a romantic island of Zanzibar and it when I first started umpiring him at Queens Club, one of the commentators, like an Abigail, said, "And welcome onto court, John McEnroe, the U.S. Open champion, the world number one, John McEnroe." And there was a huge, huge round of applause for him on center court at Queens Club. And then the commentator said, "And now the chair umpire for this match is Sultan Kanji from Zanzibar, now from London." So I was known as the players at that kind of era Mr Zanzibar because I kind of like you've just asked me I was often asked by the players where the hell is Zanzibar so I'll then give them a geographical lesson as to where Zanzibar was so that always amused the players so I was nicknamed Mr Zanzibar
0: Nice and back then I know I've read the books on obviously on McEnroe Pat Cash where you know there's a bit more after parties going on after tennis and that did you ever get involved like having a few beers with the players or was it strictly business like it is now?
1: No, it was much more relaxed then. You know, basically, I was lucky enough to get uh, invited to all the Grand Slams and umpired all the sort of show courts around the world. Uh, but that time we were fairly relaxed in the sense. One of the things that the six of us managed to persuade our powers to be is that we felt we must stay in the same hotel as the players. So we did stay in the same hotel as the players. But that allowed a good rapport, banter with the players because they'd often see someone like me having umpire at the US Open finishing at midnight, come back to the hotel, there would be, you know, the two, the player with his coach and there would be me as a chair umpire in the same hotel eating on my own, having a beer. So they would often come and chat and say, you know, come and join us and uh, kind of have a a five-minute banter. And then often in the morning, you know, we would probably go in the gym or swimming pool to relax before our next assignment, and then they would see us like normal human beings, normal officials, in uh, you know same sort of struggles, traveling around the world, and and having an unusual kind of lifestyle. So that um, that kind of you know made um, a difference sort of relationship between the players and us.
0: So much more professional now, isn't it? Where they're in different hotels. Yeah, they're probably not even allowed to talk to one another.
1: Well, things have changed. Uh, I mean, now there's there's a huge amount of prize money at stake. There's different kind of conditions, and uh, you also have now a huge entourage with every single top player. Um, way back then, it was a very small team with the players, so that has also changed. And you know, a lot more different demands now than there were then.
0: True at functional tennis we are all about helping your tennis game get one percent better every day that's why our match and practice journals are a great tool to have in your gear bag the functional tennis match and practice journals help you plan and evaluate your matches and practice sessions it includes goal setting quotes pressure tests and more it's used by players of all ages and levels and it's a great way to get away from your phone and focus in on your game to learn more visit functionaltennis.com And tell me, Wimbledon final, you did a Graf Sellers final and a Sampras Courier final. How, we often, one of the questions obviously asked the players is how nervous they were. But from your job as in officiating these great finals, how nervous were you or did it come too naturally to you?
1: Oh, no, no, I was definitely nervous, including uh, on the finals day. I I rushed off from home to get there from, North London to Southwest London, and I remember having two pairs of shoes at home, both identical pairs with different colours—a uh, black one and a brown one—and I remember wearing a black and a brown uh, left and a right foot. Until I didn't realise that until I got to Wimbledon that I was wearing uh, a wrong pair of shoes. But that you know, so that was kind of the edginess, nervousness. I think it's every single umpire when you're doing your first major, top-notch match is tense, is nervous, but that's part of the excitement of being involved. I'd imagine the players are as nervous as we are. Um, but, you know, you give the outward appearance of being calm and collected and goes with um, the things which are routine and you know, with it accordingly because you don't get to doing the finals if you haven't had a fair amount of experience to actually be able to handle that particular pressure match.
0: True, you just don't show up there. Like the players, you just don't magically show up in the final. Um, unless you're Emma Raducanu, uh, who did a great job. But uh, what do you remember from the Graf Sellers final? If there's one thing you remember...
1: Oh, it was um, one of those rain-interrupted finals. It took an awfully long time, which uh, Graf won comfortably, but it was actually over a four, four-and-a-half-hour match. And one of the things that it had kind of brewed up prior to that match was the grunting in the semifinals, which some of the players on the WTA were unhappy about, which was the grunting that so I was asked prior to the match, you know, how was I going to control that particular storyline? And for me, it was very clear that I was going to go down the the rule 25 which is a grunting rule which is a whether it's a deliberate hindrance or an accidental hindrance so uh, i remember having to deal with that which wasn't a uh, an enjoyable experience because it was a tough call to make but luckily we myself as a chair umpire had already kind of explained and dealt with with the referee Alan mills so we had already agreed how we were going to handle it. But, it but it went through well but the newspapers and the uh, following day weren't too complimentary about the whole incident, to say the least.
0: You can't keep the press happy. And from your Sampras career final, that was Sampras' first Wimbledon title from his seven. Did you know Sampras was a great in the making? And what do you remember from that match?
1: Oh, uh, because that was, uh, like you just said, it was his first um, final and first Wimbledon final and and victory. Um, Everyone had already been kind of placing him as the future number one, for me, it's always been a tough call. You know, when somebody says to me over the years, can you identify, are you a good scout hunter? You can tell talent and you can tell that they're going to get somewhere near the top. But to actually predict being number one, uh, you'd have to be a brave one to say he or she will be number one. Um, so yes, I knew he was going to be good. How good and how consistent he's going to be over the years uh, is, is a tough call.
0: And what do you remember most from that four-set match?
1: It was a fairly incident-free match, luckily for me, except for, I think I remember, I made a couple of my line judges very unhappy because I overruled uh, baseline, a couple of baseline calls the same kind of line judge. Uh, and the reason I overruled it is I saw a puff of chalk um, coming off because we used to use different kind of um, chalk marking uh, marking for the courts. So that kind of did create a little bit of controversy, a little bit of hassle. Um, but luckily, Stamperis and um, Courier kind of calmed down and went on and um, ended up greatly losing. Or Stamperis just took over and won the match comfortably in the end.
0: Nice. And do you still have your a little medal you get or a little trophy you get from presenting the final?
1: Yes, you do. You have a lovely kind of silver medal, which is on my mantelpiece, that you get for umpiring the final. And the other thing that you also get, which sadly... You, you don't get nowadays, is we were using manual scorecards, whereas now it's all done on a PDA electronically. Uh, So we used to do hand, uh, you know, with a pencil. So the scorecard was given back to the chair umpire with the two players autographing it for us. So that's a little kind of uh, historical, you know, inked off treasure that I have at home as well.
0: That's very nice. And tell me, what's the one match you tell your grandchildren about if they ask you Grandad, what's the best match you ever umpired at?
1: Uh, For me, the one match that really, really stands out is the Davis Cup final uh, in Lyon, which was between France and the USA. Again, San Francisco was there, Agassi was there, McEnroe was there, and for the French team, you had the Forger-La Conte-Noah era. And it was in an indoor arena, and there that erected... um, Bleachers, not comfortable seats we have nowadays in, in kind of lovely arenas around the world. Um, and I just remember well, the French were the underdogs and it was the most exciting kind of atmospheric match because the French are renowned for their, um, passion. Um, but they show it with their kind of clapping and kind of singing and kind of like almost every end of change of ends, which is now fairly common, but it wasn't common then. You know, they would do the Mexican wave. That was always exciting, but they always had it with their clapping of their hands and stamping of their feet. So it was a really, really thrilling stuff, and it was nice to have been involved in that. And then that match had to, uh, the, the end of the match had to be abandoned when the French won 3 1, and uh, Noah led the tanga around the court. And virtually we had another 2,000 people who ended up joining in from the spectators going onto the court. And we just couldn't get them off-court to play the fifth rubber, But that was probably the most exciting day and atmospheric match that I personally was involved in. So, yes.
0: Wow. Not sure if you saw much of the Paris Masters, which were on last week, that the crowds there were amazing, absolutely fantastic, and they're up in their feet a lot. It was just really, the, the French definitely make a good crowd.
1: They do. I mean, The spectators do make a good crowd, and the French are, much more passionate than than we here in England are, <laughs> but uh, just different sort of lifestyle. But that was a fun match to be involved in.
0: It's different. And tell me, you have the best seed in the house, sitting in your umpire's chair. Of all the players you saw play, who's the one that made out of hairs in your arm stand up the most?
1: Four. Um, I mean, Macinaw is always to me always in that particular type. You know, the the style of game that I personally enjoy watching and playing myself. So, for me, McEnroe did stand out quite a lot. as an exciting player. I mean, the other person who I also found very exciting was Stefan Edberg, which you haven't mentioned at all. You know, he was a classical, beautiful stroke maker. I mean, they were all kind of, they all had some special thing about them all. You know, Boyce Becker was exciting in a different way. Cash, Pat Cash was um, Agassi was just kind of you know phenomenal, you know, clear a lot of buzz whenever he played. Going back even further, you know, who I didn't um, who I umpired in, in an amateur way was Bjorn Borg and Vita Gerulaitis at my tennis club in North London, uh, Cumberland Tennis Club. You know, they would always have a huge fan club, you know, young fan club, which was always creating a lot of noise and excitement around whenever he played. So yes, it's been great.
0: They're all special and. Final question, is there a ranking chart at the moment between all the umpires? How does an umpire get picked for a Grand Slam final?
1: Ah, uh, well, that's a tough one. It uh, varies from Grand Slam to Grand Slam. Um, basically, the, the, um, at at a Grand Slam, you will all have 20 of the best chair umpires around the world umpiring there and uh, basically it's a decision that the referee makes for who's going to do the final so at the moment we have you know the eight guys from the ITF eight guys from the ATP. you know it depends on who is available who is working there and depends on who is heading off to another tournament following the grand slam final it's the best guys are there and there's very little difference between the number one umpire and the number two ninth umpire because they're all pretty much committed to working twenty thirty weeks so they they all know the players pretty well players know the umpire pretty well, but it's the rest of the position. it's um judgmental call on the day
0: interesting i I always thought there was a there was an actual ladder there, but it's good to know, but Sutton, thank you very much for the chat. I hope the rest of the pro league, which is finishing up now. Goes extremely well, and that you'll be back next year. Run the show again.
1: Thank you very much. It's been nice talking to you, and uh, good luck to you guys as well.
0: Really hope you enjoyed that episode. They sent it like really fun days back then. I'll be back next week, and until then, goodbye.